This is the Padverb Podcast, and I am your host, KMO. In this episode of the podcast, I am going to share a conversation with James Fodor. I am about to read his bio, which is written in the first person, starts with, my name is James Fodor, and I'm a PhD candidate, and I'm going to convert it to third person in real time as I read it. Hold my beer. James Fodor is a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne in Melbourne, Australia. He started his podcast, The Science of Everything, in 2010, which makes it pretty old by podcast standards, as a way to share what he'd learned about science and the world around him with others. The podcast is exclusively his own work, so any errors or shortcomings in the research, recording, or editing are entirely his own. His studies at university have been rather diverse, as you will hear in the coming conversation, and have at different times included history, politics, economics, philosophy, mathematics, computer science, physics, chemistry, and biology. Currently, he's completing a PhD in the fields of computational neuroscience and computational linguistics. He has a deep interest in philosophy, history, and religion, which he periodically writes about on his blog, which is called The Godless Theist. In addition, he has interests in, and varying levels of involvement with, skeptical atheist activism, effective altruism, and transhumanism slash emerging technologies. He's a fan of most things sci-fi, including Star Trek, Doctor Who, and authors such as Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov. All right, now here is my conversation with James Fodor. This is the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and I am speaking with fellow podcaster, James Fodor. James, welcome to the Padverb Podcast. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I am very impressed by your podcast. It's called The Science of Everything. I have listened to several episodes. Uh, I will admit that I have kept my, uh, I've mostly stuck to financial episodes, although I know you have a, you cover a wide, wide variety of subject matter. And they're mostly solo shows which, you know, a conversation like we're having, which gets turned into a podcast is much easier to do than you sitting down at the microphone by yourself and churning out a podcast, I know. So uh, tell me a bit about the podcast, the history of it, and um, just the role that it plays in your larger project of uh, being James Fodor. <laughs> yeah, sure. So the, the podcast, I started, uh, I think, 12 years ago now. And the reason I originally started was just because although there were a lot of science podcasts available, and I, I guess there still are, I didn't find very many that were focused on just sort of, um, I guess, explaining science content in a sort of a straightforward, direct way, um, kind of like lectures, I suppose, but uh, tailored to an audio format and in a more, bit more accessible way than, you know, your average sort of university lectures. So, I mean, that was the sort of content I was interested in just because I wanted to learn more stuff about different areas of science. And, uh, so that was one of the reasons why I decided to start the show to just provide something a bit different that was not really available very much. And I still, I don't think there's still very much that's in this area. There are a few history podcasts that kind of do this, but I guess in history, it's perhaps a little easier because of the narrative form that the material often takes. So I try to bring a bit more of a narrative flavor to the, the science that I give, that I deliver. And the, um, the other reason that I started, well, one of the other reasons that I started the show is because I find it helpful to kind of focus my own reading and research on a particular output, like doing something in particular with it and um, being able to sort of synthesize what I've been reading or thinking about in a, you know, hour-ish long 
format is is kind of helpful for me so that's sort of a, a selfish reason why i uh i started the show and um i've always had an interest in many different areas of science so i wanted to keep it fairly general so that's why i call it the science of everything podcast and uh, I, I try to mix around the topics so that you know i can i can cover a wide range of topics and i i think also that the aspect of trying to provide a unified framework for thinking about science is um something that i also find valuable well you've been doing it you say for about 12 years there's 130 episodes so uh, what sort of production schedule do you keep well it's varied quite a bit over that over that time depending on my commitments at the moment i i try to get an episode out approximately once a month that does vary a little bit depending on what i'm doing because i'm i have other commitments as well i'm doing a phd and, and some other things so uh but yeah roughly once a month and so um i will have to spend one or two weeks reading and bringing materials together and then uh when that's sort of at a ready state i'll uh, record the show and then editing and then put it up so that it usually takes like a weekend to record and edit and and finalize all that and so i'll i'll need like a week or so before that to prepare or maybe two if it's a longer show so it sort of works out about once a month yeah the impression that i get listening to it is that most of the work is in the research yeah oh absolutely yeah the recording doesn't take too long once the notes are all prepared i don't script the show i find that that adds to the well it's not exactly a conversation it's more of a monologue but it, it adds to the more conversational flavor to it but i do have a set of a detailed set of notes that i that i work from and that's, yeah, preparing those is what takes most of the time. Well, you sound very organized. It's clear that you know what you're going to be talking about next. But, you know, sometimes you'll pause. It seems like you're searching for words. It doesn't sound like you're reading a prepared script. So are you working from an outline or how much, how finished is the show when you sit down to uh, actually start speaking into a microphone? Yeah, so I, I have an outline set of notes that I'm working from. So I know what I want to talk about, but I haven't, as I said, I, I don't script out the exact wording. And that's that's deliberate because I, I I prefer that style of delivery, essentially. And I, I want to replicate a style of essentially a, a lecture where the material is prepared, but the exact wording isn't. And yeah, so sometimes when I'm recording a show, I will find that there's a gap in what I wanted to explain. So I'll have sort of pause that and adjust the notes and then and then record and, and edit that in. Uh, but usually, usually I record it mostly in one go and then just edit disfluencies or... or um, bits and pieces in and that, that takes another couple of hours but yeah I, I find that works fairly well and also scripting scripting word for word would would take a lot longer and i think it would also mean that the delivery would be flatter which i, I don't like so yeah that, that's sort of why i do it this way yeah if you're going to read a word for word prepared script you basically have to be a voice actor otherwise it is going to sound pretty dull and repetitive yeah yeah i i think so um yeah, I, I think it gives a different flavor to the show as well because most shows are either script like fully scripted or a conversation. And this is supposed to be sort of partway in between that. Well, it's a conversation of one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you ever do interviews? I have a few interviews. Um, like this one, occasionally I will have someone who wants to collaborate or would like to talk about some particular topic. So I've put a few of those up. Um I've I've reviewed one or two books on there that are relevant. Um, I release those as special episodes uh, just to sort of give something extra. But the main line of the the numbered series of podcast is just um, it's just entirely me, and I intend keeping it that way. I also want the podcast to be um, evergreen content, 
because it's mostly focused, well, it's pretty much exclusively focused on established scientific knowledge. So a, a few of the episodes um, of, of the older ones may do with a bit of updating here or there, but for the most part, it's still current. And that's also one of the things that I wanted to be a bit different because there are so many science podcasts that focus on uh, science news. And personally, I'm not really a fan of that model because I, I don't actually think that science is fits a news model very well. Science makes progress with very gradual piecemeal uh, discoveries or developments, many of which turn out to be wrong or only slight advancements on current knowledge. So I, I don't think that fits a news model very well. And I'm kind of critical of a lot of science journalism for that reason. So, so I try to focus on things that are kind of established, or if it's not known, then I'll explain what's not known and where the, the gaps lie. And for the most part, that doesn't really change. So that's why I have a, a series where I try to just progressively build on the, the topics that I've talked about before. Well, when you put as much effort into creating a podcast as you do, you, you don't want it to uh, basically get stale because it's no longer relevant to the news cycle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, you mentioned that you're working on a PhD. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I am studying at the University of Melbourne, in Melbourne, which is where I live. And uh, my topic is broadly cognitive science. Specifically, I'm studying how humans represent uh, semantic knowledge. So that's like knowledge about word meaning and how we store ideas and also combine different ideas together. So every day we're faced with novel sentences and, and phrases that we've never heard before. And somehow we have this ability to put different ideas together and, and form an understanding of what people are telling us. So it's not like we've, we have this server rack in our brain where we've just sort of memorized all of the sentences that people tell us but that's not possible so we have an ability to synthesize ideas together and that's kind of the the topic that i'm particularly focused on and and my research specifically focuses on trying to compare artificial intelligence models of uh, word representation and word meaning and, and language representation with how humans think about and represent uh, language well, it just so happens that I've been interviewing a lot of people about uh, artificial intelligence and yeah. in particular uh, neural networks and deep learning and training very large language models on enormous data sets. Oh, cool. And um, so if, if you read a popular science article on neural nets, you're likely to read a claim that, you know, these things learn like humans do. And I know that they don't. <laughs> and you know that they don't. <laughs> but why is that such a silly thing to say? Yeah, it surprises me that this... I mean, this is one of the challenges of science journalism, I think, before, among other things. But I mean, there's a number of major differences. I think one of the biggest differences is that the, the, the models, the artificial intelligence models that we have uh, learn by essentially reading huge corpuses of text. So it's like just the whole internet, essentially, and, and digitized books and other things as well, and extract, extracting statistical uh, associations from the, the text that they're processing. The amount of data that they process is, I mean, I, I've done a back of the envelope calculation at, at least a hundred times more than a human could possibly read like in their entire life if they just like read all the time. And so realistically, it's probably a thousand or more times as much. And so, it, I mean, it's clear that humans don't learn language by just extracting statistics from huge corpuses of text. That's one issue. Another issue is that the the specific algorithms that the um, uh, the machine learning architectures use are not really plausible. So many of them use uh, a technique where they pass the um, the data through a very large neural network with many connections, and the network is trained to predict the next word in the sentence, or often it's the next sentence, or maybe it's um, masked words within the sentence. It varies between the specific models. But that requires essentially comparing a prediction against 
against an error signal. So like you you have the true word or sentence or whatever it is, and then the prediction, and then you compare those against each other. And then you there's a technique called backpropagation where those errors are propagated back through a very big network, right? And and this sort of algorithm is not really plausible in the brain. Both the, the sort of prediction error thing, which is unclear, but also the backpropagating through many layers is, is definitely not plausible. It may be that humans do something vaguely like this, but the specifics are definitely not um, how it works in the brain. And, and honestly, we don't even really know how it does work in the brain other than some very general points. So yeah, the size of the data that's used and the way that it's processed are fundamentally different in humans compared to the machine learning models. And that's one of the things that I'm interested in in my research is because I think we can learn some things from these models, but it's the sort of question is exactly what and how they relate to how we process things in the human brain. And I think that's a very interesting area of research at the moment, trying to nail that down a bit. Well, I'm about to ask you a question that if I were being interviewed and somebody asked me this question, I would be uncomfortable. <laughs> but <laughs> Go ahead. You brought up the word. What is backpropagation? How does it work? And why is it important in the, on the topic of um, artificial intelligence and neural nets and deep learning? Oh, sure. Right. So I, I wasn't intending to explain the details, but it, it, I'm, I'm happy to. So I, I mentioned it because backpropagation is an, is an algorithm. So it's just a series of steps that the computer programs use that's used in a very large number, probably really all of the major like machine learning models that have been developed, particularly the language models. So it's, it's, it's really what's given rise. It's one of the things that's given rise to the kind of deep learning revolution we've seen in recent years, that and more computing power. But what it means is effectively, um, for, for those who know, it's, it's an application of the chain rule from calculus, but don't worry if you don't know what that means. The, the important point is that it's, it's a way of assigning credit to particular nodes in a network, right? So suppose I have a big network that has many different nodes connected to each other, and I'm trying to predict like the next word in a sentence, right? And suppose that I get the prediction wrong, right? Well, what I want to do is I want to update the weights that connect these nodes together so that next time I'm more likely to predict the correct answer. That's that's how these uh, networks are trained. But the question is, how do I assign credit to particular nodes? Like, how do I know which weights to update and which ones to leave the same or which ones to increase, which ones to decrease, that sort of thing. That propagation is, a, is, a, is an algorithm that allows a credit assignment for each of the different layers backwards across the network. So if I have like 10 different layers connected to each other, I need to send the errors back all the way through the network to the beginning so I can update all of the weights. Otherwise, I'll only update the weights at the very end of the network. And that's not very helpful, right? Because I have many, many layers connected to each other. So backpropagation is the specific algorithm that tells the weights in the network how, how to update and how to assign credit for which nodes were, uh, which connections were important for making that decision and which ones weren't important. And without that, we wouldn't be able to train these big neural networks that, that are currently used in these language models and, and other applications. And the whole point about that is that this algorithm is, it's pretty much known to be not plausible for the brain to implement uh, because the brain doesn't have access to these signals that sort of um, travel backwards across a network like this. There, there are a whole range of different projections that exist in the brain, but none of them seem to be able to carry this particular type of signal. So one big question currently in neuroscience is, does the brain implement this kind of supervised learning where you're like, you have the labels and, uh, and then you, we can tell whether a prediction is sort of correct or incorrect. And if so, how does it assign credit to like which awaits to update? And is there anything like backpropagation or some approximation of that that happens in the brain or not? At the moment, there's no evidence at all that anything like this happens in the brain. So anyone claiming that these artificial neural network models are doing something like what happens in the brain, that's, that's speculation. Like it's possible that something approximating it happens in the brain, but no one knows if that's true. 
Well, I think even if it is discovered tomorrow that there is some sort of back propagation process going on in the human brain, and I don't think that's going to happen, but you know, if yeah. it does, still humans learn very differently from machines in that humans are, it seems anyway, primed to learn a language very early, and they don't need nearly as much data you know, as machines do. And they're not just making statistical correlations, they're acquiring concepts, you know, and associating them with sounds. And as far as we know, machines don't acquire concepts, they just make statistical correlations between groups of words. I'll stop there and let you correct anything I may have gotten wrong and expand on that. Yeah, that's, that's uh, correct. And that's something I wrote about in the article as well, uh, where I where I discussed this recently. So um, the I mean, that's effectively what my research is focuses on human concepts. What exactly is a human concept is pretty hotly debated. But um, I think one way to think about this is that it's an abstract representation of something in the world or some, you know, some construction that we have that's an, an abstraction. So, so some concepts are about very concrete things like tables, chairs, dogs, whatever. Others are more abstract, like democracy or freedom or whatever else, right? But the idea is that there's some sort of stable representation or mostly stable representation in our, in our brain somewhere that forms a representation of this idea, this thing in the world that we can then activate or, or bring to uh, recollection when we need to think about or reason about that, the corresponding idea. So do neural networks have concepts? Well, in a very vague sense, they have some kind of representation of a word, say, but it seems that they're not really anything like human concepts. Um, one important difference is that the language models only have text to, they only, well, most of them only learn from text, right? So really what they're doing is making big associations between when certain words appear in texts and when other words appear in text. So they're making all these complicated correlations. And humans actually don't learn language from text. No one learns to speak by reading. Uh, they, we learn by uh, hearing and interacting and speaking ourselves. And a big part of that is the interaction part. So pointing at things in the world, interacting with things in the world, feeling emotions, corresponding with things, you know, seeing a face that corresponds with you know, mom or dad or whatever. That's how we learn. So the the technical term for that is embodiment, right? So language is embodied in the way we interact with the world and the way we perceive and 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 so forth. And the current models don't have any of that, right? All they have is the correlations. Whereas th those sort of linguistic correlations probably play some role in human language, but I would say only a small role because of all of the other things that we know are more important, especially when you're talking about children learning language. And so as a result of that, it seems that the language models don't learn the same type of uh, richly structured set of concepts that humans do. And by that, I mean that humans have a whole host of, a concept is not like just a label that you apply. Like I see a dog, I'm like, oh, a dog. Concepts are much richer than that because we can use them to reason. So like if I ask you how many legs does a dog have or does it have fur or, or I don't know, could a dog fit inside a letterbox or random questions, right? You could probably answer many of these, even though you've never thought about them before, right? A classic example that sometimes is given in the literature is that machine learning models don't pick up facts that a lot of humans know but don't talk about very often. So it turns out that often you, we don't describe bananas as yellow because everyone knows that bananas are typically yellow, right? And so the, if they're not described like that very frequently, then language models won't pick that up because they just pick up word correlations effectively. Whereas humans will just learn those sorts of things and be able to reason about them in a very um, novel way. Language models can do a little bit of that, but the abilities are much more constrained compared to what humans can do. And it seems that a big reason is they just don't have the same type of interconnected, richly structured, flexible concepts that humans do. They have a very kind of impoverished version, which is mostly just about word correlations.
So I'm referencing a comment in the chat here. I'm not going to read it verbatim. I'm going to paraphrase it. But sure. Parker asks something to the effect of, why is it important if uh, machines don't learn the way a human brain does? Well, that depends on the application, right? So if we want to develop language models for specific purposes, like, I don't know, customer service, or for I don't know, use in game applications for creating dialogue, or for automatically moderating comments or emails, things like that. There's lots of applications for these things where it might not matter at all whether these things form concepts or, or learn language the way the humans do. But if th there are a number of cases where it probably does matter. So one is from a scientific interest, which is sort of my focus. If we want to use these models as scientific models of human language learning and or human concept representation, then obviously uh, we want them to approximate the way that humans do it, because that, that's sort of the purpose of a scientific model. And anyone making claims about these models as if they are like scientific models of how humans actually reason and, and perform language tasks, then, then that difference is going to be relevant. But the other thing is that for, for a lot of more sophisticated applications, I mean, we sort of want these models to be able to reason in a more human natu natural human way so i mean what one example could be if we want to use a machine learning algorithm for like moderating facebook or youtube or something like that i mean and, and they are used for that purpose already right but there's still a lot of things that the um that the models can't pick up and one of them is sort of sensitivity to context right and the um the, the nuances of like one sentence following on from another and and picking up something because a lot of the models have a limited a limited like contextual window. So they just forget everything that's more than a certain number of words previously. And part of the problem there is they don't really have, they don't really have like a stock of world knowledge that they can appeal to that then is accessed in a context specific way. So if I'm talking to you about my podcast, then we know that that's the context, right? And I can remember something I said, you know, 10 minutes ago, hopefully. <laughs> uh, whereas, you know, the, the machine learning models don't really have anything like that, right? So, um, and plus, you know, they, they can't do this, the same sort of flexible inferences and so on that, that we just talked about. So in some cases, that's not going to matter, but in other cases, they're going to miss things. And they often they'll just sort of pick up on key words or phrases that are associated with other things and not deliver the result that a human would, right? And so another example, actually, that comes to mind that people have worked on is automated marking. Of, of essays or, or test answers that would actually be really useful for uh, for education if that could be developed to a point where it was as, as good as humans but again that that requires a sophisticated like being able to mark an essay for example requires an ability to synthesize the argument that's been made and follow the steps of like how that's been argued out and you can use um, one thing that these models are very good at is is picking up on like grammar and and word use right so you can use these to mark an essay just based on like is it grammatical and does it use longer words and things like that right and and you can then build a data set where it's like well this this essay looks like the language that's used in high scoring essays so you could potentially be accurate there but the the model wouldn't really have a clue as to whether the argument that it was making made any sense or the points logically flowed and, and so on so again if you wanted to use it for that application it would really have to be more sophisticated than than current models so i, I guess the point is that for, for more sophisticated applications you really want a model that is able to think more like a human does and for that i think we need to move beyond the current uh, techniques that are used what i've noticed is that uh, language models they don't even behave like, say, you know, computers from science fiction of yesteryear did, <laughs> and that they're not very logical. You know, they, they can't construct good arguments. They can't dissect arguments. They're, they're just not very good at reasoning. All they're really good at is searching for language which seems like it might plausibly fit into this context. Yes, well, it's one of the challenges here is that because these models have read like the whole internet, 
anything that someone has said on the internet could potentially find its way in the model. Now, sorry, you wanted to comment? Yeah, I was just going to say all the crap that's on the internet, all the nonsense and just gibberish is available to affect the, the behavior, you know, the language behavior of these models. Yeah, so I, I want it's not the case that the models just memorize the whole internet, but it is the case that the the weights that they've learned that shape their performance are controlled based on everything that they've read. So if there is a particular combination of words in a certain context that they've sort of updated weights on, they could be reproducing that in response to anything that you ask it. So this is sort of hard to test, right? But this is one caution that I always make when people report on apparently like creative or, or insightful behavior in these models is that, well, how do you know that it hasn't learned that from somewhere on the internet? You, you'd have to sort of verify that that wasn't part of its training set or that it didn't affect its weights in some way. I don't actually know that there's been too much work into that. It's, it's kind of hard to find if something's not on the internet, I suppose, which isn't, I'm not saying that, again, these models just memorize things. They are more sophisticated than that, but because they are trained on such huge data sets, it's very hard to tell what they have and have not seen. And that comes to your point about being logical is that they're not trained to be logical, right? You, you can construct algorithms that will logically process arguments, but these aren't that. They're, they're trained to replicate patterns of text that they have seen. And so very often they will be able to provide arguments if you ask them for things. They'll, they'll have a conversation with you, but quickly they'll forget about what they've argued. They very often make inconsistent arguments. I guess maybe that's more human-like <laughs> than, than we'd like to think and get into loops uh, that they just go around in circles or say things that just don't make a whole lot of sense. So yeah, I agree that they're not very good with arguments and that shouldn't really come as a surprise because they haven't really been trained for that. They've been trained to replicate speech that, that sort of fits with uh, surrounding speech. And so, um, yeah, they'll say things that kind of look like they're an argument in isolation often. But then when you when you look at the whole context of the discussion, that it often kind of falls apart. At least that's been my experience. There are many uh, very amusing YouTube videos of GPT instances talking to one another, basically carrying on <laughs> conversations and going in, in very strange and un, you know unexpected directions. But what strikes me is that they can't start the conversation. There's got to be a human to type in a seed phrase or something to get things going because you know they just don't have an agenda, yes. really, other than predict what comes next. Yes. I mean, I suppose you could put a random seed in, but I, 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 most of those conversations probably wouldn't be very interesting. But yeah, I mean, that's the other thing that language serves a purpose. It serves a communicative purpose for humans. Of course, sometimes we say things without having a particular reason, but but in general, there's some purpose behind what we say, that we have an intention that we carry out through language. Language is a way that we express ourselves, that we try to get other people to do things, that we convey ideas. And um, that, that all sits inside a range of other cognitive capabilities that we have, like our memory, perception, emotions, you know, uh, social needs and things like that. And these language models don't have any of those things. They just have the, the language associations. So... I mean, there's no real sense that the, like, the models want to say anything or have any reason to say anything. That's just not part of, of what they're modeled to do. Um, and so we shouldn't really expect that. But the, the idea that we can, the idea that you can model language through a series of word or sentence associations external to any communicative purpose is, is a bit strange. And again, for some purposes, that might be sufficient. But I think that, yeah, we, we should be really reticent about interpreting the results of these uh, models as if they have any communicative purpose, even though they may seem to, uh, depending on the particular example. Because sometimes you do get surprising results. So it's like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't expect that. But they're, they're not modeled to have a communicative purpose. And, and because that's so central to humans, I think that that's another central element that's missing. So my academic background uh, is far behind me. I, I went to <laughs> college in the 90s. 
And um, I did graduate study in the philosophy of science and the philosophy of minds. So I was, you know, thinking and reading and writing papers on these topics. Yeah. You know, back like 1995, 96, you know, long before the crucial year of 2012 and Gregory Hinton's team and, you know, all, all of the, the breakthroughs that led to this flood of new applications and excitement and research now. And I, I can't claim that I've been working at this for, for decades. You know, I did it for a few years, decades ago. So I, I can't be as indignant as some of the people, but I, I'm going to channel the indignant attitude that I've heard from other people of, look, philosophers of mind have been trying to work out in the abstract what constitutes a mind, what, you know, what a mind has to do, all the different tasks of, you know, taking in data from the world, synthesizing it, figuring out what's relevant, and then directing the body into action or saying words or, you know, making use of that information, creating these counterfactual fantasies about what might happen if we do this or if something else were the case other than what we see, you know, what would be different. All of this stuff is going on in the mind in real time such that you can say something to me and with no particular lag, I can say something back which demonstrates to you that I understood what you meant. And what's more, I've, I've thought about some portion of it that maybe you haven't and I'm suggesting a new avenue for inquiry. People have been thinking about how a mind has to be structured and organized for decades. And then you get, you know, these, these young pups who haven't done the work, you know, who haven't, who haven't earned their, uh, their stripes, who come in and think that they can just build this, you know, multi-level neural architecture and, um, you know, apply a back propagation algorithm to it and feed it a notion of data. And they don't need to know a thing about the mind. They don't, oh, you know, all of the previous research, all of the previous work, all of the previous, you know, study and just painstaking and, and, you know, defending one's ideas against challenge from peers. All of that is meaningless. All you need is a lot of data, you know, a particular uh, architecture and a backpropagation algorithm and, you know, call it quits. It's done, you know. So <laughs> I, I imagine you've encountered some, some uh, version of that indignant attitude that I've just articulated. Yeah, there are there are certainly people who hold the view that it human well human cognition more generally and language specifically may just be a very large neural network with lots of data. Typically, they come from the like machine learning space. Then there are also on the other side, particularly I think philosophers. So um, Noam Chomsky is an example of this, and my namesake Jerry Fodor probably would be because he was when he was alive. If uh, <laughs> if he was around to see the the most recent examples, and they say basically that these machine learning models tell us nothing at all about language or the mind, uh, and that they're just um, complicated parrots essentially. So it, I mean, cognitive science has been uh, pretty controversial from way back in the fifties when it started, and I guess, I guess it still is, right? I mean, I, I sort of sit somewhere in the in the middle of these two. Exchange. I think that the models do tell us something about about language. One one thing is that it surprised many people how how good the performance of the models is in replicating human speech, even with a in a sense very fairly simple architecture. Actually, one thing that I was playing with uh, in a for a subject uh, I guess a couple of months ago was um, something called n-gram language models, and these are these are kind of old school models that aren't really used anymore but they date back to the time before the deep neural networks and they're actually incredibly dumb right it's basically just you um process a whole bunch of text and count the number of times each word appears but then you also count the number of times like 
uh, each combination of two words appears and three words and so on. And then if, if that combination doesn't appear, then you, you make an estimate on how often you'd expect it to appear based on other correlations. So it's literally just counting. It's, it's, it's even much simpler than the current deep learning models. Now, what's interesting about these n-gram models is that when you get to the higher, like five grams and so on models, they can actually produce fairly human-like speech, even though that there's no syntax or anything that's built into the models, right? And I want to emphasize that they're incredibly dumb. They only just count the number of times different patterns of words appears. So I think that it's interesting how you can get very human-like behavior with, in a sense, a lot of data and just really, really dumb models, but also maybe how humans are very ready to perceive intelligence and kind of content behind behind language, because that's what we're used to doing, right? We, in the real world, we don't have examples of, of any entities that produce language-like output that doesn't have communicative intent. I suppose maybe parrots being the unusual exception there. So, so whenever we encounter something that looks like language, we're ready to interpret it as if there's a communicative intent and some sort of intelligence behind it, even when it's a really dumb chatbot. And then with the current models, which are kind of, I would say, very smart chatbots, but still essentially chatbots, right? It's very easy for us to perceive perhaps more than there is there. But at the same time, I, I do think that there is there is some learning there uh, to be had about what you can do with a lot of data and you know many simple nodes connected together, which in some sense is what the human brain does, right? In some very abstract sense. But I think we need to learn more about the specifics of how that works, because it's clearly different from how the machine learning models work. Well... I could connect with the um, the viewpoint that I was articulating uh, before, but it's not really my own position. My own position is that, you know, there is a space of possible minds that is vast and human intelligence occupies one region mm. of this vast space. And we're going to create, if we create anything that counts as intelligence at all, uh, we're going to create something that occupies a different space, you know, in that possible, that space of possible minds. Maybe there will be some overlap. Maybe we'll be adjacent you know, areas in this abstract space, or maybe we'll be very far apart. But, you know, if the AI can do something useful, and, you know, it does so far, but I think there's a lot of unrealized possibility that people are assuming is going to be, you know, delivered delivered upon very soon, and I'm not confident that it will be. But, um, yeah, to me, it's, it's not important. What, what's important, not necessarily, is that artificial intelligence replicates human intelligence. I think it's more important that it complements human intelligence. Well, that raises a big question about what we want artificial intelligence to do. I'm very interested in artificial intelligence as a model of human intelligence for scientific understanding. So for that purpose, I'm more interested in it telling us something about it. But of course, there are many engineering and um, practical applications that for which that that's not really necessary. And there, I think we have a much bigger question about what we want artificial intelligence to to sort of do for us. I, I mean, personally, I think that it's likely that artificial intelligence will drastically reshape our societies and economies over the next, I don't know, 50, 100 years. We, we don't really know how long to, a time frame. It's already having significant effects, but we're still in very early days here. And it's likely, I think, that we will have a situation where just like, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this, just as in the past, we had a, um, a change with the role of humans in the economy through the Industrial Revolution, where artificial muscles effectively were able to replace human muscle power in, in many, many contexts, and humans then adopted different roles in the economy. Likewise, we'll probably see many of the roles that humans have traditionally occupied be replaced with artificial intelligences, probably for the better. And hopefully, we'll find another place for humans in the economy. I guess some people are worried that AIs will replace us at everything. I think that that's relatively unlikely, at least over the you know, foreseeable future of decades. But I mean, that's, that's very much an open question. 
but yeah, to come back to your point, it's not um, it's not obvious that that those sort of AIs would have to think like humans to do many of the tasks that we uh, would would want them to do. Although I think for at least for some tasks, thinking more like humans would be useful. And from a scientific point of view, yeah, well, then it becomes crucial if we want to understand how humans think. And if we want to upload our minds and live forever. <laughs> well, yeah, that uh, that's a, that's another aspect, right? So that that relates to something else that I'm interested in, although not working on, which is whole brain emulation. Now, this is very different from like language models, which which try to model high level cognitive phenomena. A whole brain emulation would be a bottom up simulation or emulation of the well, the human brain at a like a neuron level or even a molecular level, depending on how ambitious you were. There are people who've talked about this, but we still don't currently have the technology to um, to perform the simulation or enough enough knowledge about what we actually would be trying to simulate. In theory, though, uh, depending on which philosopher you believe, if we could perform a whole brain emulation to the sufficient level of resolution, then potentially that would basically just be a human a human uh, person in in silicate form. And so, um, hypothetically, at that point, there would be nothing to stop you from scanning your own brain and, and uploading yourself. Um, and personally, I think that that will be possible, but that definitely requires a lot of technological advancements that we, uh, we don't have yet. So Parker says, uh, this talk makes me view chatbots as idiots, and so AI is not to be feared. Well, I don't know that the second one follows from the first. Well, I mean, idiots can be dangerous, right? <laughs> or idiot technology. Uh, so, but it's also the people using the technology, which more is what I, I would be concerned about. Um, but but the other thing is, I, I wouldn't exactly say that the, the current language models are, are idiots. I, I suppose if you were talking to a person who thought like a chatbot, you'd think that they were an idiot because they would keep forgetting about what you were talking about and they would say non sequiturs. Although there are people who kind of talk like that. So I suppose maybe it's not as unrealistic as you might think. But, but the other thing is they're still, they're still capable of very sophisticated linguistic behavior, right? And so, I mean, people probably heard about the, the Google researcher. I think it was a Google who recently was... The, one of their uh, bots became conscious. Blake Lamone was the researcher yeah, and Lambda yeah. was the language model. Yeah. So, I mean, they are capable of sophisticated behaviors. And I mean, there, there are legitimate concerns there. One would be in terms of um, potentially stealing information from people online, like through confidence tricks, essentially. Um, that, that would be one application that I could readily foresee. Of course, there are good uses as well. So it's really a question of how the technology is deployed and to that, I would say that what we should fear is not the technology, but the use to which it's put in the institutional environment that it exists in, which, I mean, I think that's true for pretty much any technology. But Well, I'd like to talk about economic issues, but you've been very uh, grounded and responsible in your statements here about artificial intelligence for the last <laughs> 40 minutes. So let me uh, just throw open the gate and say, play wild-eyed futurist. And what are some, you know, some colorful uh, speculations that you're harboring about where we might be going in the, the near future with AI? Well, machine learning models are becoming more and more capable of performing specific tasks that they're trained to do. And, and I think that at some point in the near future, probably we will see some of these models be applied to perform a, a lot of what I might call mundane white collar work that, that people perform in kind of a, an office environment. A lot of this is things like, you know, updating spreadsheets and producing reports and stuff like this, right? Which is sort of routine, but still requires a level of, a level of understanding that up to the moment is, well, actually th there is a whole space of people who have automated their jobs and they're asking on like Reddit, whether they should tell their bosses and so forth. So actually some of it could already be automated, but I'm saying beyond that, um, I think we will see, we'll start to see probably over the next decade or two, this becoming happening increasingly at uh, probably larger businesses will start doing it first. And um, that will change the employment environment, right? Because skills that were previously marketable will cease to become uh, marketable or they'll become increasingly more difficult. I think that what we'll see is that people will have to have more 
well, I guess it's sort of a trend we've already been seeing. Basically, things that differentiate them from a machine, so ability to learn quickly, synthesize information, and um, think analytically in ways that it's still more difficult for machines to do. So I guess that's kind of already trends that we've been seeing, but I think that we'll see an acceleration of those where people will have to increasingly differentiate themselves uh, in, in these sort of cognitive tasks from things that computers can do. I think that's going to bring a whole, will hopefully bring a whole lot of benefits. One of the things that a lot of people don't like dealing with is poor customer service. Hypothetically, it should become possible soon for, I mean, that companies are already doing this, but that we're not quite at the level yet where you can have a chatbot that can, you can just call up a helpline and it will basically deal with your, it will deal with your problem because very quickly you get into something that it doesn't know how to deal with. But in constrained environments like this, it should be possible to deal with a large percentage of, of these sort of issues in an automated way, and uh, at least fairly soon. And, and I think those, these are the sort of applications that we'll see come, come online first. Basically, when the environment is fairly constrained, and if you have a, an algorithm or a machine that's capable of producing and understanding natural language within its constrained environment, and then dealing with a relatively constrained range of possible responses, that we'll be able to see uh, these machines deployed in those contexts. And um, that would be great, right? Because <laughs> then we wouldn't have to deal with, I mean, I, I suppose there will still be a, an element of frustration, but um, at least you won't have to stay on hold for, you know, like two hours and have all the other annoyances of things like that. So I, I think that there's a lot of boons available there, but it will it will create challenges in the uh, in the labor market, which we've already kind of seen with, with outsourcing and globalization. But I think that th th these are only going to increase as many cognitive uh, traditionally cognitive tasks then come under the realm of things that can be automated. But I, I do think that we'll continue to see a, a, um, an area of comparative advantage for human beings uh, because algorithms are not cheap. Computer power is not free. The intellectual property that these things will be under will still cost something. So there'll be a place for humans in the workforce for a long time to come. But I think that will be a challenge for a lot of people and will probably also put pressure on our education system to continue to adapt to like focusing on skills that are actually relevant for uh, the, the workplace. Well, I, I'm tempted to encourage you to push further out toward the fringe, but uh, let's <laughs> let's jump over to uh, economics for a bit, and we can tie it back to uh, to artificial intelligence because they are certainly yeah yeah you know linked concepts. But I just listened to a series of podcasts you did, not not just one episode, but multiple episodes in a row, talking about what causes some countries to enjoy the benefits of economic growth and others not. Yeah, yeah. And as with many things, you know, the economic story that people are going to gravitate to is probably going to be a downstream effect of their political ideology. Mm. So, you know, if, if you're a post-colonial studies major, uh, you're going to say that the rich countries are the ones that went to the, you know, the, the global south and raided it and took everything back. And, um, you know, it basically we're just living off the spoils of grand theft and everybody else is living in poverty because they had everything stolen from them 200 years ago. You know, I've stated that in a very prejudicial fashion. That's not exactly how it's stated on college campuses, but, you know, words to that effect. Uh, but what are some of the other theories that people have put forward as to why some countries enjoy rapid economic growth, uh, a rapid growth, not just of, you know, um, accumulations of wealth at the top, but, you know, a, a widespread prosperity, you know, growing middle classes, rapid industrialization, and other countries just languish? Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked about this. This is one of my favorite series of, of podcasts, even though it hasn't done as well as some of the other series. I think that many of my listeners are more interested in the physical sciences, which I think is somewhat a shame because, as I mentioned before, I see science as more unified. And this question about 
uh, economic growth and development is is of central importance for our times because it shapes so many things that happens in the world and there's so much human misery that is still really avoidable if we could figure out how to um, how to generate sustained development in many countries. And so um, it's something that I've been interested in for a very long time and um, wanted to synthesize some of my thoughts and readings in um, in a series of podcast episodes. And one of the interesting things about this question, at least in my experience, is unlike many other scientific questions or social questions, many people seem to think that they know the answer to this question. Whereas a lot of other things people will acknowledge that they kind of don't know, but uh, at least a lot of people have sort of folk theories about the reasons for why some countries are rich and some are poor. And you, you just sort of mentioned one of them, which is about sort of colonialism and exploitation. What most of the folk theories have found academic adherence and then like more developed forms discussed in the in the literature but but in addition i think that there are there are other views as well so one common view that you tend to find in maybe different areas of the political spectrum focuses on geography and there are a number of recent slightly older books that have that have talked about the importance of geography for development so the argument here is that nations that have experienced more development find themselves in areas on, on the coast so that they're more able to trade with more navigable rivers in temperate regions rather than, than tropical regions obviously without you know deserts and and without as many um like impenetrable jungles or mountains and other things that promote ethnic fractionalization which is known to cause issues so so that that's sort of one argument uh, that that some people make and there is some evidence to support that but there are also for any simple story about growth or development there are countries that you can find or regions of the world that are exceptions to that which is one of the things that makes this question so interesting so one of my favorite examples is switzerland right which is basically the richest country on earth that doesn't have like huge oil supplies and switzerland is like the counter example to many of these stories, because it's mountainous, uh, I guess the Rhine flows through a little bit of it at the top uh, in the north, but for the most part, it doesn't have large navigable rivers through most of it. It's ethnically fractured because it has like four languages as used, and it doesn't have significant natural resource deposits, and it's landlocked. So it doesn't seem that it would have any of the any of the core ingredients that you would, you would typically think geographically. Another theory that's been discussed a lot is the importance of education. Uh, the, the argument there is that Particularly primary and secondary education provides people with the uh, you know literacy and numeracy skills and other basic knowledge that they need to function in an industrial environment and to seek the employment and, and find jobs and so on that then enables them to build the economy and uh, gradually develop a more knowledge-based economy. And there certainly is some evidence that supports that, but there are, like other things, many, um, many counterexamples as well. One of the things that this doesn't explain is the poor performance of the, the former uh, Soviet bloc economies, which had very educated workforces, but certainly towards the later 20th century performed quite poorly. And there are also other countries that have invested, uh, developing countries that have invested in, in primary education and not, uh, and not necessarily seeing the returns that they would expect on that. So that's the, the education explanation. Another explanation is culture. This goes right back to the uh, the 19th century, uh, the Protestant work ethic and ideas like that, where the cultural differences between nations explain why some people are more industrious and more um, more focused on invention and and innovation than others. A more recent example of that is appeal to like Confucianism or Confucian values as an alleged source of success for China and South Korea and Japan, countries like that. This argument, although you still find it in in the literature, is as I say taken somewhat less seriously these days. One of the reasons is because culture is so multifaceted that you can always find aspects of any culture that both promote, that you would expect to promote economic development and also retard economic development. So it's a little bit hard to kind of construct any theory as to why one would be more important than others. So, um, but you still see this argument discussed sometimes. And the the theory that I, in my uh, series of podcasts, focus on the most, and I think is kind of the mainstream view, at least in in economics, about the single most important factor favoring economic development is institutions. 
so political and economic institutions. So institutions are sometimes defined as the rules of the game that shape how you or how firms and how individuals and and um, groups function in a society. So these things these include things like the legal system, uh, protection of property rights, how the political process works, and how the, the political ruling class or the ruling party or whatever it is determined. You know, rules that shape the labor markets and the education system and all, all sorts of things like that, right? So this this includes both formal rules and also informal norms and things like that. And there is a huge amount of literature in, in economics and political science that focuses on how different institutions are, are formed and sustained over time and how they change and how some institutions promote, you know, investment and entrepreneurship and others make that more difficult. For example, a, a society in which corruption is widespread, it's often much more difficult to invest and much more difficult to ensure that your property rights will be protected and that you'll be able to maintain the um, control over your uh, property or your innovations. Um, and you end up having to make a lot of bribes to different people in the political apparatus to ensure that you can do anything. And so that makes it harder for, for innovation to occur because you, you have to have the money to sort of bribe everyone. So that's an example of a, a type of institution that is uh, not favorable to growth. So there's a lot of focus on that these days. One of the problems, though, is that we don't really have very good theory as to how you get good institutions. So it's, uh, it's a little bit, um, in some sense, a circular explanation because uh, more developed countries have better institutions, but we're not entirely sure how you sort of go from the one to the other. But anyway, that, that's a bit of a whirlwind tour of some of the different theories that I discuss in more detail in, uh, in that series of episodes. Just to retread a little bit, you were talking about institutions mm. as something that is important, you know, that would allow a country that starts off without, you know, with low GDP to grow rapidly. But what are some of the other things you mentioned? Um, geography. So the further from the equator, you know, uh, a country is, uh, the better off it is in terms of, of rapid growth that, you know, the equatorial countries tend to be poorer, uh, you know, with some some notable exceptions like Singapore. But, you know, for the most part, uh, the hotter it is, <laughs> the harder it is to, get, you know, get, a, get economic growth going. Um, you talked a little bit about education. And I was listening to this episode just earlier today, and I think there's, there's one other category that I can't bring to mind that I don't remember you mentioning. Oh, democracy. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's another one that's discussed. Yeah. Talk about democracy. How important is democracy for economic growth? Well, in my opinion, not very, actually, uh, at least not at the level of not at the level of moving from very poor to less poor. I think it's probably important at the level of moving from middle income to higher income. And this is a question I discussed this in my uh, in my episodes. And it's it's a nuance that's important, but is surprisingly often neglected in, in a lot of the discussion I see about this, actually, even even for people who should know better, that there are many levels of development that are possible for a country to have, right? In particular, we can distinguish between countries that have not yet industrialized. So in our world, that would be much of sub-Saharan Africa, still large parts of India and uh, certain areas in Southeast Asia for the most part. And we might call those low-income countries. On the other hand, there are countries that have largely industrialized, a little non-industrialized pockets around, but still have not reached high level income status and for which they're still large, you know, often large urban slums, large underemployment, and many areas of the economy that are very um, backward and inefficient. But there is still large scale urbanization and many people working in manufacturing and uh, large primary level literacy. So these are middle income countries, many countries in South America, for example, uh, large parts of China and the Middle East would, would fit this sort of general general scheme. 
And then there are high income countries like, you know, uh, in Europe and Japan and the US, right? So now the thing is that the factors that promote moving from being a low income country to a middle income country are not necessarily the same as those that promote moving from a middle income country to a high income country. And it's important to keep that distinction in mind because people often make comparisons across those across those sort of differences. So it certainly seems, so certain people have argued like Amartya Sen, for example, that democracy is very important, although he, he focused on like famine relief in India. But the question of economic development is a little bit different. Some have argued that a democracy should be better able to promote sharing of resources and, and wealth and institutions that benefit the majority instead of a, a small minority. And there's certainly an argument to be made there. But empirically, it at least seems to me that there isn't much evidence for the claim that democracy promotes economic development in low-income countries. In fact, it's actually very difficult to find stable democracies. Let me rephrase that. It's very difficult to find low-income countries that maintain a stable democracy over any significant period of time. Uh, the only real example that I'm familiar with is India, which has really been an exception there in maintaining a, um, a, a sort of a genuine, open democratic system, despite being you know, very poor. It's, it, they've begun to develop a little bit in the past few decades. But for much of its independence history, 50s, 60s and 70s, it was a very, very poor country. Uh, very few other countries managed to do this. Most of the countries in Latin America, and in Sub-Saharan Africa and, and Southeast Asia that became independent, uh, quickly became authoritarian or single party states or Marxist states, depending on the case. Pretty much none of them maintained um, multi-party democracies. And so um, you don't really have, it just doesn't seem that low-income countries are very good at maintaining democratic systems. And I guess there's plausible reasons for this, right? That if you have mostly, um, if you're mostly un underdeveloped, if many people live in rural areas, they don't have access to much media from the wider country if they're not literate and if they are mostly concerned about day-to-day -day survival probably they're going to have less interest and ability to engage in political in, in political dialogue um, and it, it tends to be the case that existing elites then um, co-opt those systems and, and use it for their own purposes so there's also a lack of democratic norms and institutions in many countries at independence because they they weren't sort of um, prepared for that but so it, it's sort of hard to see much of an effect of, of countries that are democratic then becoming developed. In, indeed, it seems to be the opposite. It seems to be what will happen is that a country will become developed and then it will become democratic. So this happened in Taiwan. It happened in South Korea would be two clear examples where they achieved relative level of prosperity and then uh, and then democratized, I think, in the in the 80s or 90s in both of those cases. I guess it's kind of happened in um uh, Eastern Europe as well, although obviously you have the, the Cold War issue there that, that complicates things a bit more. It's happened in countries like Chile as well uh, that democratized more recently. So yeah, it seems that in many cases, the development, at least to a certain level, happens and then you, you see democratization. And indeed, just as there are very few underdeveloped countries that are democratic, there are very few highly developed countries that are non-democratic. Obviously, some are more democratic than others, right? We see democratic backsliding in countries like Hungary and Turkey recently, for example. But to full-on authoritarian regimes, you really just have really have to look at the um, petroleum states of the, the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, for example. And those are always kind of an exception, right? Because they're they are very rich, but they're, they're not exactly developed in the same way because their economies are so highly focused on oil and they have huge numbers of foreign laborers and other things. So if you put those to the side, basically all developed countries are democratic, at least to an extent. And basically all low-income countries are undemocratic. And then in the middle income, you have kind of a, a mixture of both. So it's a bit difficult to tell a clear story about the relationship between democracy and growth, other than at least to my, to my judgment, it seems that democracy follows from growth rather than causes it. And I actually think that the, the, one of the reasons for this is that because when people have their needs met to a certain extent and re receive a certain level of education and ability to participate in the political sphere, it's at that point that they begin to demand more freedoms and uh, more uh, representation.
that's what we saw, for example, happen in in the former Soviet countries when their standards of living reached, uh, you know, at least like modest levels. And then they began to compare themselves to the West and realize, yeah, you know, we don't have things as good here and we don't have the same freedoms that they did here and began to demand for more freedoms. Obviously, there's more to the story than that. But I do think that's a part of it. So, yeah, the, the story about democracy and growth is a complicated one. Well, equally complicated, I think, would be the uh, relationship between petroleum yeah. or you know fossil fuel resources and growth. Uh, there's something called the resource curse. Some places that are seemingly blessed with you know great stores of rare earth and minerals or oil or natural gas, they're nightmare places to live. And other places, you know, with that seem equally blessed, like North America, uh, are you know models of. Um, well, maybe not models, but are are comparatively much more egalitarian and democratic with strong institutions. So, what's what's at work there? What why do some countries fall prey to the resource curse and others just benefit from their resources? I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. So, m most countries that have very large deposits of like concentrated high value materials, like petroleum or diamonds, would be another example. Most of those are authoritarian countries. And it seems, so there's an argument in the literature that the ability to extract the rents, rents essentially in economics just means free money that you don't have to like compete for, to extract the rents of those valuable minerals or natural resources is what enables the authoritarian regimes to fund, to fund the system that keeps them in power, basically. So they need to pay off the military and other key, key supporters, but they don't have to provide, at least they don't necessarily have to provide a broader society that's inclusive. And, and brings more people into the political system. So that's an argument that's made. I mean, one problem is that authoritarian systems also arise in resource-poor environments. So I'm not, I'm not sure that the resources necessarily pr predicts one way or the other there. The other thing is that there are some exceptions, uh, right? So one example would be Botswana, which is the, the big exception in sub-Saharan Africa. It's really the only sub-Saharan African country uh, that has achieved sort of middle-income status. I guess South Africa would sort of be the other one, but there was a large settler colonial population there, so I kind of put that in a separate category. But in terms of countries without any significant settler colonial population, Botswana is really the only one to do very well. They're not high income, but they're much wealthier than surrounding countries. This is despite the fact that they are landlocked, that most of the country is desert, that they have that they have suffered from a huge HIV-AIDS epidemic. I mean, still do, but it's a little better than it used to be. Uh, that's devastated their working population. And they have huge diamond deposits, um, which based on the resource curse, you would expect to be um, to lead to uh, civil war and uh, authoritarianism. So that's the other thing that I should have mentioned, that apart from leading to authoritarianism, readily available resource rents also tends to, the argument is promote conflict because people fight over who controls the resources. Uh, but that hasn't happened in Botswana. Botswana has actually been quite peaceful and relatively prosperous compared to its neighbors. I mean, it has had much more effective institutions than surrounding countries. But of course, the question is, well, why is that? What, why have they been able to do better and manage those resource rents better? I don't know that there's a clear answer to that. And I think what we do need in this area is more focused, detailed, work on looking at particular case studies and trying to fit those into broader theories. There's still a relative dearth of that kind of work in my view. But I think overall, it does seem that readily available natural resource rents are bad for many countries. The USA is a bit of a different case because although it does have, like it has large or had slash has large fossil fuel reserves, its main, the main reason that it was settled and became prosperous early on was, was its uh, large arable land. Uh, not so much its natural resources that actually came later. So its its institutions and wealth was actually developed primarily in sort of 19th century on the basis of its available land, and then it began to industrialize in the second half of the century. 
And so it, it didn't um, enter the modern scene, so to speak, with those readily available resources present, which which is different from cases like, say, Saudi Arabia, which basically became a country just, well, slightly before the large oil deposits were discovered and began to be exploited. And then there's cases like um, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is really just a very dysfunctional country in the center of Africa that has never been prosperous and has been badly exploited throughout its history and has seen almost continual civil war for decades, but has huge natural resource deposits of all, uh, all sorts of things. And it's a real tragedy that things have gone so badly for that country. It has almost everything working against it, except for the uh, the natural resources. It's it's very large, so it has many different ethnic groups. Um, it's had a history of exploitation, so it's never really had a, any kind of government that works for its people. And it's uh, most of the territory is like tropical rainforest, so like uh, navigation is difficult. Although it does have the Congo River that runs through large parts of it, so. I, I think the the answer is that really you need to look at different countries and even regions within countries, kind of a case by case basis, because there are so many different contingent things that that happen there. At the same time, you do need a theory to be able to interpret what you're seeing there. So it's kind of, and that's why, as you mentioned earlier, so many people come to the table with views that are based on their political theories, it's because you kind of need a framework, right? But I, I guess the question is trying to ensure that it's a more of an objective framework that's based on the evidence and not just not just your own preconceptions. But so, I mean, it, it's clear that in the coming back to natural resources, it is clear that uh, often they can be a bad thing for a country, but they can be a good thing if they're well utilized, like uh, the wealth in, in Botswana, as an example. And I think the the answer to that is you, you need to develop good institutions that are able to put that wealth to good purposes. But how you build those is really an open question. And I don't think anyone has a good answer to that. I mean, if we did, we would have done it, right? <laughs> it's perhaps not entirely surprising. We know what good institutions look like, but we don't quite know how to develop them when from a baseline where um, there aren't any. Parker in the chat uh, points out that you said that you know, the United States and Canada, they were not based on, you know, petroleum. That's not why they became a country, that mm. they were, you know, well-developed agricultural economies before petroleum was even relevant to anybody's, you know, thinking. But uh, Parker points out, even before we had the agriculture, there were beavers. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> lots of wealth was created trapping beavers here in North America and sending the pelts to Europe. Yes, the, the fur economy, that's true. That's true. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, James, we've been on for a good long time, so we're going to have to wrap it up. But I very much enjoyed this conversation. I hope it is the first of many. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks very much. And it was good to chat about a, a diversity of topics, which which fits my podcast, I suppose. <laughs> it does indeed. All right. So uh, we'll have links to your podcast in the show notes. Is there anything else that you would like the uh, the listeners to be aware of that you're working on? Uh, yeah, well, if people are interested, you could check out my podcast, as I already mentioned, the Science of Everything podcast. But I also have a blog, which is called The Godless Theist, which is mostly focused on philosophy topics, because I'm also interested in philosophy and religion. I also have a YouTube channel. That's just my name, James Fodor, where mostly that's about philosophy. But if you're interested, you can check that out as well. All right. Thank you much. I've enjoyed our conversation. It's a pleasure. That was James Fodor, and boy have I got a mental block on this. This is the second time on this podcast alone that I have meant, I have reached into my word bag for the name Jeffrey Hinton and come up with Gregory Hinton. It's Jeffrey with a G, which is probably why I'm coming up with Gregory. But he led a team in 2012 that uh, published some pioneering work, which has become very influential, particularly as it's been developed over the past decade uh, in neural networks, and computer vision. So looking back on the first part of the conversation where we're talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning, 
I'm struck by Parker's observation. And Parker was somebody who, when I record these interviews, they actually stream live to my YouTube channel. So people who are subscribed to my YouTube channel, have notifications turned on, and just happen to be on YouTube, when I'm having these conversations, they get notified that they're taking place and they can participate live in the chat. And uh, Parker is one of the folks who meets all of those criteria. But when I think back on that first part of the conversation, and I, I think of Parker's comment about language models and chatbots being idiot technology, and James saying that, you know, idiot tech can be dangerous. I think idiot tech is particularly dangerous. When I'm thinking about AI and my interest in AI, you know, it, it goes back probably to my childhood, just, you know, with robots and science fiction. But thinking about it seriously in a nonfiction context, my interest goes back to the early 90s. And at the time when I was thinking about AI, AI just meant what now we would call AGI or artificial general intelligence. And I didn't encounter the narrow general distinction uh, until later, probably the late 90s. Early on, it was just AI, which is what we would now call AGI, and narrow AI at the time was called expert systems. And I just wasn't really interested in expert systems. <laughs> they seemed uh, just prosaic and uh, not very impactful and, and not really worth thinking about. And yet, as artificial intelligence has gotten more sophisticated and capable, it hasn't gotten any more sentient. You know, it's not aware. It doesn't have desires. It doesn't have intentions. It just executes its instructions. But it is having enormous impacts, particularly on our psychology, as it curates what we see on our screens, often following the explicit instruction to keep us glued to our screens and just discovering through trial and error that a good way to do that is to get us angry at each other. And so, to me, it seems like the more capable artificial intelligence is before it has any inkling of being a being, you know, having a self, having subjective experiences, having desires or intentions, the more capable dumb AI is, the more dangerous it is. Now, there is always the possibility that, you know, when AI wakes up uh, and becomes sentient, that it will decide it doesn't like us and, you know, take appropriate action. But I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I think that most of the harm that AI is doing and will continue to do in the future will be without malice and without intention, at least not its own intention. Now, on the topic of the second half of the conversation, where we're talking about economic growth and the generation of high GDP and widespread prosperity in some countries and other countries which seem to enjoy similar starting positions don't do nearly as well and often just languish in authoritarianism and widespread poverty. What's going on here? And James talked a lot about institutions. Institutions can be formal structures, you know, like the Federal Reserve, you could consider to be an institution, but, you know, the nuclear family, traditional marriage, you know, these are also described as being institutions, the Christian work ethic. But I think what needs stressing here in hindsight is that institutions facilitate trust. Broad trust horizons. Being able to trust people who are far from you that you don't know, but you have experience with this system by which you interact with them, it facilitates trust. Maybe you know, given that Amazon is a huge employer, maybe you know somebody who works at an Amazon warehouse right now, but in all likelihood, you don't know anybody at Amazon. And yet, it's quite likely that you've given them your credit card information, 
and you have asked, you've given them your, your home address and your name and lots of information about you that would allow them to do at least financial damage to you, if not worse, but you trust them. Why? You don't know them, but they're embedded in a system that you trust. You know, trust begets trust and distrust begets distrust. And I would say that in the countries that haven't done well, particularly those with the resource curse, which is to say they have lots of cobalt or petroleum or diamonds or something else that is concentrated, valuable, and worth fighting over. The reason why some places like Botswana do well under those conditions and other places like the Democratic Republic of the Congo have done exceptionally poorly, you know, under similar circumstances, I would say largely comes down to trust. We didn't mention this in the conversation, but in listening to James's podcast, in one of them, he talked about, you know, and now I'm, I'm now I'm not trusting my memory. <laughs> I don't know if it was in one of James's podcasts or in a book that I read, but uh, the idea that in in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, where there aren't strong institutions that allow for robust trade and economic development, a lot of times trade is, or you know, certain industries or uh, certain product lines, you know, trade in certain product lines is exclusive to families or, you know, particular ethnic groups or some other smaller subset of the culture where there is trust, you know, where trust has been established through familiarity. And trade is restricted to rather narrow channels where trust has been established. And, you know, we've talked about crypto quite a bit, uh, Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies. And one of the elements of the, the crypto uh, ideology, I would say, is this notion of code being lost so that you don't need to trust other people or even trust institutions. And I think that's probably a very unhelpful framing. I think that the, the strength of crypto transactions, you know, being executed according to code and not according to anybody's opinion or anybody's willingness to play nice, I think that basically just is a new reason to trust the system. It is an inducement to trust, not a replacement of trust. And I want to read just a few paragraphs to you from the book that I'm currently reading. It's called The End of Alchemy, Money, Banking, and the Future of the Global Economy by Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England. So this is from very early on in the book, in the introduction, in fact. Uh, I'll be reading from pages 10 and 11, and I will be skipping certain paragraphs just to um, keep things focused here. Mervyn King writes, Trust is the ingredient that makes a market economy work. How could we drive, eat, or even buy and sell unless we trusted other people? Everyday life would be impossible without trust. We give our credit card details to strangers and eat in restaurants that we have never visited before. Of course, trust is supplemented with regulation. Fraud is a crime, and there are controls on the conditions and restaurant conditions, but an economy works more effectively with trust than without. Trust is part of the answer to the prisoner's dilemma. It is central to the role of money and banks, and to the institutions that manage our economy. Long ago, Confucius emphasized that crucial role of trust in the authorities. Three things are necessary for government, weapons, food, and trust. If the ruler cannot hold on to all three, he should give up weapons first and food next. Trust should be guarded to the end. Without trust, we cannot stand. When I left the Bank of England in 2013, 
I decided to explore the flaws in both the theory and the practice of money and banking, and how they relate to the economy as a whole. I was led deeper and deeper into basic questions about economics. I came to believe that fundamental changes are needed in the way we think about macroeconomics, as well as in the way central banks manage their economies. A key role of the market economy is to link the present and the future, and to coordinate decisions about spending and production, not only today, but tomorrow, and in the years thereafter. Families will save if the interest rate is high enough to overcome their natural impatience to spend today rather than tomorrow. Companies will invest in productive capital if the prospective rate of return exceeds the cost of attracting finance. And economic growth requires saving and investment to add to the stock of productive capital and so increase the potential output of the economy in the future. In a healthy, growing economy, all three rates, the interest rate on saving, the rate of return on investment, and the rate of growth are all above zero. Today, however, we are stuck with extraordinarily low interest rates, which discourage saving, the source of future demand, and, if maintained indefinitely, will pull down rates of return on investment, diverting resources into unprofitable projects. Both effects will drag down future growth rates. We are already some way down that road. It seems that our market economy today is not providing an effective link between the present and the future. So, in a thriving, dynamic economy, not only do we need to be able to trust people that we don't know who are distant from us in space, we need to be able to trust people in the future, which means we need to be able to invest our trust in our governments, in our banks, and in economic institutions, both formal and informal, which lead us to place our faith in a larger economic system and not withdraw our trust horizon to the people that we personally know. Because a society which is based exclusively on personal relationships is feudalism. Well, as I mentioned near the beginning of the conversation with James Vodor, there are many different types of podcasts, and podcasts where there's just one voice, and they are explaining something complicated to you, something which required a lot of research. Well, those kinds of podcasts are much harder to make than this sort of podcast, which is based on a conversation between two people. But even so, you know, if you don't podcast yourself, you know, in essence, that it's people speaking into microphones. But as somebody who's been podcasting for 16 years, I can tell you that the speaking into the microphone part is the easiest, most fun, and least tedious portion of the entire process. And it takes the least amount of time as well. Most of the time in a podcast like this, most of the effort, most of you know what makes the podcast happen is keeping the guest pipeline full, sending out emails, researching you know who would be an appropriate guest, and then seeing if they're interested. And if they're maybe sort of kind of interested, well, then trying to convince them to be genuinely interested. That is the role of the producer. And I am very fortunate in being able to just do the fun part of podcasting here on the Padverb podcast. And I'd like to thank the team of producers who let me just do the easy part and still get the podcast out to you. They include executive producer Anna Haskell, producers Slava Borisov and Alina Voigt, assistant producer Sonia Saw, audio engineer Vasily Morin, and music by Slava Borisov. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Padverb Podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. I will speak to you again in one week's time. Take care. <laughs>